Um, all right. Amen. Thank you. It's good to be back, I think. Uh, well, let's jump in. Should have four, two diagrams and two sets of notes. Uh, let's let's pray and get started. Father, we love you. We ask you today for clarity and understanding for faith to arise in our hearts. Father, we love you. We want to be your servants. We want to honor you today. We love you, Jesus. Come. Amen. So, uh, I just did a couple of diagrams that I've been meaning to do for a while. They're from session 12 of the theology class, but I went ahead and I never had the time over the break to draw them out. and So I finally got around to it uh, while I was in Haiti, oddly enough. Um, so it's just a eschatological spectrum in which you have really the view of God's faithfulness towards his creation. And uh, as a creator to the created, when you introduce the uh, when you introduce the dualism of material and immaterial, then on the one hand you have absolute unfaithfulness in which the created uh, realm, the material realm, is annihilated and destroyed and you have an immaterial heavenly destiny which is kind of summed up in your amillennial endgame in which God, there's really no interaction with the material realm. There's no, the material realm's just going to get worse and worse and worse until we die and escape it or until the day of the Lord when God destroys it and, uh, and the righteous go to the immaterial, righteous and wicked go to the immaterial world. Um, you have post-millennialism, or of course that's the one end of the spectrum, the exact opposite end of the spectrum is that God sits enthroned uh, within creation at the high of the heavens and that he is faithful to everything he's made and he will restore uh, creation. So you have a destroyed creation destiny and a restored creation destiny and you have the spectrum in between in which you have the amillennialism which just has the immaterial up here. And uh, the material down here. And there's really no interaction to the material realm. And the goal is simply to escape to the immaterial realm. And then you have post-millennialism, which still believes in the immaterial destiny but at least it emphasizes some aspect of God's involvement in the material realm. So you have some uh, emphasis on faithfulness towards creation. And then you have classical dispensationalism, which, uh, if you remember, is two programs of salvation, one for the material, one for the immaterial. And so you have kind of half-faithful, half-unfaithful, in which... The uh, church escapes to the immaterial reality and then uh, God uh, restores the material reality through Israel. And then uh, you have modified dispensationalism, which it just depends on what kind of modified dispensationalism. Like I would put Ryrie more over on the on the Amil side, because it ultimately ends in an immaterial heaven after the millennium. And then I would put Pentecost more over on the historical pre-mill side, because it ultimately ends in a restored heavens and earth, the church and Israel together. Um, and then you have progressive dispensationalists, which are pretty much uh, on the same train as George Eldon Ladd and what the dispensationalists call covenantal premillennialism in which you have the immaterial and material, and uh, you have uh, until the first coming, 
you have the beginning of a merging of the material and immaterial until the day the second coming and the day of the Lord when the when the material and immaterial are kind of merged together um, but the point is is that you have a idealing and restoring of uh, of creation and the material realm and so I would put it further over uh, towards uh, what I believe is historical premillennialism in which uh, God simply restores the original glory of the earth and the heavens, cleanses the heavens and restores the earth. So, I thought it might be easy for you just to, I mean it's just five end games, right? You can think of five automakers, Ford, Toyota, Honda, GM, I mean it's not so you kind of get the five main end games within theological thought, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of variations all in between. But uh, hopefully that'll give you kind of a grid when uh, to uh, filter through when people are talking. So uh, this is the other one: the concentric uh, rings of glory, and uh, we kind of drew this in session twelve last uh, semester. And I think it's helpful, uh, I, I don't think it's a, an ideal way of viewing it, but I think it's helpful just to uh, get a picture of what it will be like in the age to come, and therefore that helps interpret uh, things uh, before the day of the Lord. And so if you pull out your supplemental notes on uh, the concentric glory diagram, you have, uh, you really have in the Davidic covenant and in the prophetical writings after the Davidic covenant and uh, a, uh, a full picture of what it will be like when God restores the heavens and the earth to their original glory. And the reason it's a, 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 a little confusing is because it's not, obviously there wasn't a Davidic family in the original equation with Adam, but you you get the Davidic family in context to the temple, in context to Jerusalem, Israel, and the nations, and that is the picture within which God restores humanity to uh, its original uh, intent and design. Point B, since Jerusalem will be the center of the Davidic Messiah's global empire that will bless all the nations of the earth in the age to come, it is named... Uh, it's nicknamed Zion. And so what happens in your English translations, it's like the uh, it's like the Nephilim, which the the Septuagint and the uh, the old King James, New King James translate the Hebrew word into the supposed meaning, which is giants. Whereas your other translations just transliterate it and avoid the translation of it. So likewise the Hebrew word Zion um, where the question is, what does the Hebrew word Zion mean? And commonly, Zion is thought to be a slight word play, a slight alteration of the Hebrew word uh, Zion, which is dry or parched place. But uh, a number of commentators uh, argue that rather than Zion, it's a word play on, uh, on uh, Ziun, or Zion, which means signpost or monument. So the point is, is that uh, rather than when when David calls it Zion and the prophets refer to Jerusalem as Zion, rather than them calling it a dry and arid place, uh, or even possibly a fortress, I think the point is, is that they saw it as a sign or a signpost of the hope of the resurrection and the day of the Lord, and that uh, Jerusalem and the temple were simply uh, a point of reference to what the what will be in the age to come. It's a sign of the age to come. Uh, thus, see, the Bible completes the picture of the age to come when the glory of the Lord covers the entire earth as it uh, as it was in the beginning with Adam. This glory will extend from the heavenly throne of the Messiah and the inner sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Thus you have something of uh, concentric rings of glory emanating from the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem, encompassing the entire earth. 
So uh, definitely not an exhaustive list. I kind of copied and threw it together this morning in the prayer room. But uh, just to give a little bit of uh, context and so I just worked through the glory of the Messiah, the throne, the Messianic throne, the temple, Jerusalem, Israel, and the nations. And they all overlap because uh, because they're all connected together. But Psalm 2, which is uh, the most referenced uh, scripture in the New Testament and, and clearly uh, uh, central in Messianic expectations. Psalm 2, then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And uh, throughout the prophetical writings, the temple is established on the hill of the Lord, on the holy hill in Zion in Jerusalem. So the Father says, I've installed my king in Jerusalem on the holy hill where the temple is. I'll proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said, you are my son. Today I become your father. I will make the nations your inheritance. So uh, he, he rules uh, to the ends of the earth. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then Psalm 110, of course, is uh, second to Psalm 2. Uh, in its quoting and its uh, messianic expectation, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord's at your right hand. He will crush kings on the, he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell or sit enthroned, for I've desired it. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And the Messiah will uh, will sit in uh, in glory. And then uh, Daniel seven in my vision at night there was uh, one before me like a son of man. He was given uh, all authority, dominion, all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All powers, nations, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. He's given dominion that doesn't pass away. And so uh, the this is. Obviously, there's a lot more, but just a couple of New Testament references that embody the expectation of uh, the Messiah. Matthew 19, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so there's an expectation of the Messiah sitting in his glory, in Zion and Jerusalem, over uh, Israel, over all the nations. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him. So the uh, I think what has clarified for me more than anything else is the nature and understanding of what the temple was and how they saw the temple. Um and uh, because we, after you have the introduction of Platonism and you have the disregarding of the restoration of creation, therefore the disregarding of uh, Israel, the disregarding of the Mosaic law as an instruction pointing to the age to come, and thus a disregarding of the temple. And once the temple is destroyed, it's uh, really just forgotten about. But the temple is so integral to to the Judaic mind and integral to the age to come and what it will be like in the age to come. So Isaiah 2, which again, Isaiah 2 is just one of those singularly formative passages like Psalm 2 and 110, Daniel 7, etc. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. And so you have the mountain of the Lord in which the temple of the Lord is established uh, in Jerusalem as uh, as uh, chief over all of the other mountains, which in this age house the high places of the gods. Um, but in the age to come, the Lord will raise up his temple, and it will it's a, just a poetic way of saying he'll destroy all the so-called gods 
uh, in the age to come, and he will he will uh, establish his glory over all the nations of the earth that worship false false gods. So he'll be chief uh, among the mountains. He'll be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, uh, "Will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." So the nations are going to bring their glory, which is emanating forth from the the messianic throne, which resides within the temple that the Lord will raise up in the age to come, and all the nations will come to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, <coughs> and. Uh, and the, the law will go forth from there. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations, settle disputes for many people. Isaiah 56, this is what the Lord says in context to Isaiah 55, when the Lord raises up uh, the, uh, the seed of David and makes an everlasting covenant with him. And... Uh, and uh, Etc., etc., the transition into Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says Maintain justice and do what's right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Referencing Isaiah 55, which, you know, Isaiah 55 is what Jesus quotes in Revelation 22. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who, qu- who holds fast. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer, which is the temple, and he's referencing in the age to come. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, which then Jesus uh, quotes that passage in the Synoptic Gospels, and his point there is not a reinterpreting of Isaiah 56, but simply a reinforcing. And he overturns the money changers and rebukes the, uh, the, the stewards of the temple and says, listen, in light of the age to come, when there won't be any unrighteousness on the whole earth, God will eradicate it and his glory will come forth from this house. How can you make this, which is supposed to be a witness and a, a beacon to the age to come, how can you make it a den of robbers, oppression, and thievery? That's, he's not, he's not uh, uh, undermining the value of the temple. He's reinforcing it, saying, don't you have any respect and fear of the day of the Lord and the, and the purpose of this place? Zechariah 6 uh, here's the man whose name is the branch. He will branch out from this place, the temple that was being rebuilt uh, in Zerubbabel's day. He'll, he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty. He will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And so this is the context for the understanding of the people in building the tabernacle in which they saw Mount Sinai as the initiation of the day of the Lord, when the glory of the Lord descended onto the mountain, and then the glory of the Lord rested over the tabernacle, it was just assumed that God was going to bring this into the promised land to their forefather Abraham, and he would establish the blessing of the resurrection to the Israelites from that deposit of glory over the tabernacle that would then spread to the ends of the earth the righteous uh, and bless all the righteous from the nations. So uh, 1 Kings 8, when the priests withdrew from the holy place at the dedication of the temple of Solomon, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you. The dark cloud, you know, referring to uh, prophetic passages, but also uh, just referring to the incident at Sinai when he descended in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So that's how they viewed the temple was a dwelling of the Lord and the glory of the Lord forever. And this is a deposit 
guaranteeing that the glory of the Lord will be restored to the entire earth. It's a very simple worldview. It's a very simple understanding. Uh, if the end game of uh, global glory is in mind, so to say. So in this context, Jesus makes a whip out of cords, uh, and this is kind of a, a parallel in John to the synoptic uh, Gospels, but he makes a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? What miraculous sign can you show us that you are the Messiah and that you will set up your throne in the inner sanctuary because that was the point. The Ark of the Covenant was always referred to as the footstool of the Lord. And so uh, in their mind, they had the heavens and the earth, the Lord sitting on high over the earth, the day of the Lord, and so with the, with the tabernacle and the temple and the inner sanctuary and you have the ark, the ark is seen as obviously a bad diagram, but God sitting on the throne with his feet extending and his feet sitting on the ark of the covenant in the inner sanctuary. And so the footstool is seen as the initial place of the promise when God will uh, reestablish the glory of the Lord over the whole earth as it was in the beginning and give to each according to what he's done. And so, uh, so he says, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that you are the Messiah when you will take up, when the Messiah will take up residence in the inner court and set up a throne and, and, uh, and initiate the day of the Lord. And so, page 3, Jesus answers, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the temple he spoke about was his body. Now again, because of, because of Platonism, generally the way that gets viewed is that Jesus was somehow undermining the temple, which he wasn't at all. He was, he was completely reinforcing the point that, that he had been anointed as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and God had given him the Holy Spirit and given him authority to raise the dead and judge the wicked. And therefore, when his, uh, him saying, this is the miraculous sign that you're asking for, that I have authority over this temple and will take up residence in it. This is the miraculous sign that this temple, my body, which houses the glory of the Lord, will be destroyed, it will be raised again in three days, and that will be the sign to you that I will return in glory into this temple and destroy the wicked from, from, from its midst. Does that make sense? It's not... Anyway, so uh, Acts 2, this is why the disciples continued to meet in the temple because in their minds, you know, they... Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many mirac- wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts, and they broke bread in, in their homes. And so the, the temple wasn't some sort of form or model of ministry. It was a signpost of the age to come. And so they continued to meet in the temple, recognizing, and it was an expression of their expectation of Acts 1, that he ascended and he will descend in the same way to the temple. And so that's why the people went there before. That's why the, the apostles continued to meet there. And it's why it, it wasn't, you know, Paul goes back in Acts 20 or wherever it was when he goes 21 when he goes into the temple and and uh, and 
and does the deal in the temple, not that he's simply appeasing the Jews or not that he's falsely, uh, uh, you know, being like a Jew to win the Jews, so to say, but that he really appreciated the temple for what it was and still believed that this was going to be the center of uh, Jesus' empire when he would return. And so the temple, again, is not, and this is part of which we'll work through in in session 10, the temple was not a model for ministry, which the Catholic Church uh, set up after the Constantinian shift. The temple was a signpost, which got destroyed, and the model for ministry is whatever structure best encourages the church in its sojourning and most strengthens it. So uh, the glory of Jerusalem Psalm 48, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. And so you have reference to the mountain of the Lord where the temple is in the city of our God. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zephon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, they advanced Uh, Together they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Psalm 102. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will rise. And so there's the declaration that you sit enthroned over creation. And I believe that you will do what you've promised to uh, to restore creation, you will arise and have compassion on Zion, on Jerusalem, for it is time to show her favor, show favor to her. The appointed time has come, for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. The Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion, his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. So uh, again, you just get the picture of the nations of the earth coming to the God of Israel and, and worshiping in Jerusalem to his temple where the king of Israel uh, the Messiah is uh, is sitting. Isaiah 24, In that day I'll punish the powers in the heavens, the kings on the earth below, the moon will be abashed, sun ashamed, the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem before its elders gloriously. Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 40 oftentimes doesn't get, uh, uh, Jerusalem doesn't get the appropriate context, and the whole uh point of Isaiah 40 is that Isaiah 40 is being declared to Jerusalem that uh, a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way for the Lord make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God every valley shall be raised up every mountain and hill made low the the rough ground shall become level the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it together the glory of the Lord will be revealed from where from Jerusalem. And it says, I asked, what shall I say? He said, all men are like grass. Their glory fades and, is, and disappears. And the point is, is that in the resurrection, the glory of the righteous will be restored. And then right after that, verse 9, you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. Um, Isaiah 59, you can read that one, but uh, uh, the context of the the Redeemer coming to Zion, well, Isaiah 59 and 60, I'm I'm eating up all my time for session 7. But Isaiah 59 and 60, when you read it in context to the glory of the Lord from from Jerusalem, it just makes a whole lot more sense in which the arm of the Lord, the Messiah comes. He judges the nations. The nations revere him. The Redeemer comes to Zion to redeem those and, uh, and pour out his spirit on those in the resurrection. And then Isaiah 60, there's no break in thought or continuity. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. <coughs> and you in this context is Jerusalem, uh, is Zion, which the Redeemer comes to. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And so these are the passages for... uh, Revelation 22, in which all the nations come to the new Jerusalem, the uh, restored and glorified Jerusalem. Jeremiah 3, return, O faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I'll choose you, one from the town, two from a clan, to bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, uh, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Because that was the point, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord was seen as the footstool of the Lord, and his point is, in the aid, at the day of the Lord, when he punishes the wicked and establishes righteous over Israel, like he says to his disciples, you will sit on thrones judging Israel, and they will be shepherds over Israel, and he will set the righteous over the nations, that there will no longer be a hope in the ark of the Lord because the Messiah himself will be in the inner sanctuary. And so this is the point of Revelation 22 when it says... I looked and there was no temple. And Revelation 22, the word is is poorly translated temple because it's a different word in the Greek language for temple and inner sanctuary. And Revelation 22 uses the word for inner sanctuary. And he saw that there was no inner sanctuary for the Lord himself was the inner sanctuary. The Lord himself was in the inner court and there wasn't the sign of the throne of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, but there was the throne of the Lord itself. Uh, Like Jeremiah 3, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. And so right after that, Revelation 22, the nations bring their glory into Jerusalem. Uh, Page 4, the glory of uh, Israel. These are fairly common passages. Isaiah 9 in which the child is born to us, he will reign of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. The increase of the glory of the Lord over the earth, there'll be no end. He will reign where? On David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forevermore. So you have a distinguishing between the offspring of uh, of. David and the throne, the kingdom of David and the kingdoms of the nations. Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll raise up to David a righteous branch, a branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what's just and right. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he'll be called the Lord our righteousness. Zephaniah 3, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad, rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so this is in context to the day of the Lord, dark and, and gloomy in chapter 1 and 2. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they'll say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands lay limp. He'll take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. And so again, the rejoicing is in context to the resurrection. So John 1, this is, this, is the, this is the context for when Jesus gives the word to Nathanael, the uh, word of knowledge to Nathanael, and Nathanael declares, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. You will rule over Israel and the age to come. Uh, and Jesus says, you'll see much greater things than this. Heaven opened and the glory of the Lord descending to the earth and emanating from Israel to the nations. John 12, blessed, uh, when the people came, they cried out, blessed is the king of Israel. 
So in this context, you have a view of God blessing Israel in the resurrection and, th- and through that and in subjection to, uh, uh, to the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth receiving the blessing of God and the glory of the earth covering all the nations, Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is just a, uh, a beautiful psalm in which you have the suffering of the Messiah in the beginning and then the reward of the Messiah in the middle in which he'll, he declares his name in the midst of the congregation and then the, the, uh, or the vindication of the Messiah in the middle and then the glory of the Messiah amongst the nations at the end of the psalm. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he will rule over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Psalm 98, and I was, I just copied and pasted because that that whole batch of psalms between Psalm 96 and 100 are all of similar and like fashion. But I just put the whole Psalm 98 because I was just, I I spent about four hours one morning in Haiti and Psalm 98 was all over me. It's just amazing. So sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So the Messiah has worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He's remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the nations of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth burst into jubilant song with music. And so, and then it goes on uh, to describe all the jubilant song, which really gives context for worship and music and songs. The reason we do such things is because this is what the earth will be like. Isaiah 11 will happen. In that context, Isaiah 12 The whole earth will sing a new song and rejoice before the Lord. And so our singing and rejoicing is an anticipation to the songs that will cover the earth uh, uh, in the age to come. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth burst in jubilant song with music. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing to the Lord. So it's passages like this in Isaiah 55. And Isaiah uh, 35, in which you have the idea of creation itself is longing for the revealing of the sons of God in Romans 8, which even creation itself will, will uh, rejoice at the day of the Lord. And so it's, uh, I guess, figurative to whatever degree when Jesus says to the, to the uh, Pharisees and, uh, that, If the children don't cry out, then the rocks themselves will cry out because the whole creation is longing for uh, the day when it's liberated from uh, from the wicked, which is kind of a slap in the face. (laughs) Way to go, Jesus. Uh, So let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So you have all the components, the arm of the Lord, remembering his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel and revealing it to all the ends of the earth, the salvation of the ends of the earth, and all the ends of the earth, including creation itself, rejoices and sings when he comes to judge the world. So I just put Psalm 117 in there because Paul quotes it, but praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love towards us, his faith, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah 11, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. His place of rest will be glorious. He'll raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. And then Isaiah 25, on this mountain, on the mountain from Isaiah 24 that he uh, rules from with his elders gloriously, The Lord will prepare a rich feast of food for all peoples, the banquet of age, wine. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations. He'll swallow up death forever. Page 6, Zechariah 9. The king that comes in uh, to Jerusalem on the foal, his rule will extend to the nations. Habakkuk 2. 
The nations exhaust themselves for nothing because the glory of the Lord is going to cover the whole earth when they get judged. And if they don't repent, then they'll be covered with disgrace rather than glory at the day of the Lord. So in that context, Romans 15, in light of the all the nations of the earth rejoicing uh, in the Messiah, he says, and the harmony that will be established, the peace that will ever increase amongst all the peoples of the earth, the peace that will be proclaimed to all the nations when sound judgment goes forth upon the earth is in context to... Uh, to the Messiah being king of Israel over the nations and the harmony and peace that's established, we emulate and, uh, in this age and, uh, and, and live in, in harmony, reflecting that in the church. And so, uh, so again, it's like the elder son and the younger sons. Israel is the firstborn among the nations. And, and again, that doesn't solve the issue of how you define Israel, but... Uh, and how God will define Israel in the age to come, but clearly he defines it in the age to come. So ethnically, culturally, uh, biologically, however that happens, but there's a distinguishing between the two. And being a younger son and being Irish mainly, uh, I'm fine with that, however that works out. Um, But I I think it gives a, a simple and clear picture of of how it will be in the age to come that we can emulate and walk out now and makes and clarifies the distinction between, uh, gives appreciation for the dispensationalist camp that is so large and, uh, and that there really is a distinguishing between Israel and the nations, but not a distinguishing in the plan of salvation. There's a restored creation in which God rules over the whole earth, Israel, and the nations by means of the Messiah from the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so that took way too long. Uh, But, whatever. So, uh, if you want to pull out session 7 and your diagram from the beginning of class. Um... Introduction and review, in context to the kingdom and the resurrection, the church is essentially a sojourning people called to prepare in righteousness and witness to all the other nations and peoples that Jesus is the Messiah, appointed judge of the living and the dead, given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, assuring the resurrection, and given grace by the Holy Spirit in our sojourning and witness. So point B, which we just worked through kind of the threefold purpose of the church in light of the kingdom and the resurrection, and we prayer, we, we seek God, and we walk according to the Spirit that we might be found faithful in what He has called us to in this age. So B, in this age, the, uh, the darkened human heart is disciplined unto repentance and believing, and prayer internally by a fasted lifestyle and externally by trials and tribulations. So you can really think of all the watchful lifestyle and the spiritual disciplines, you know, Richard Foster and that whole genre of spiritual disciplines as a means that God has given us to combat the darkened heart and to stay on a narrow path unto a rich welcome into the kingdom. And so it really is naivete that people disregard the spiritual disciplines because they don't appreciate the darkness of the human heart. And they think all other men are corrupted by money and power, but not me. I'm a unique one, and I don't need to guard myself against the flesh, but it, it, it really is just naive, and it's part of the whole self-delusion. And so, like John Wesley says, the Christian who doesn't fast, saying you're a Christian who doesn't fast is like saying you're a Christian who doesn't pray. It's, it's just whole, the whole gamut of we don't gain righteousness by spiritual disciplines, but we just appreciate the reality of who we are. And the church is called, if we're going to stay on a narrow path and not veer off to a wide road 
of destruction off that narrow path. The Lord has given us these gifts to, uh, to restrain ourselves. And then in context to that, he's very kind to us by giving us trials and tribulation to keep us on that narrow road because we even use uh, uh, the gifts to exalt ourselves and veer off that road. And so we welcome and accept as kind discipline from the Lord uh, uh, trials and tribulations in our life, not theoretically, but, uh, and that's what, you know, every human heart rejects trial and tribulation. That's just, that's how the darkened heart is. And so uh, it's uh, the way we view redemptive history as a whole and therefore we approach such things with joy because we know that it will be rewarded uh, when we get to the end of the narrow road. So Luke 12, the pagan world runs after all these things in this age, and your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom. Restrain your life, discipline your life from seeking after these things that the pagans run after. Seek the kingdom, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well, the, the things that you need in this age. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you, a, give you the kingdom if you walk in righteousness. And, and the point is, and then he moves straight into sell your possessions, give to the poor, fast, pray, etc., the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount doesn't earn you the kingdom. It's just the Sermon on the Mount is the way that you stay on the narrow path and not go down wide roads of destruction because if you don't do these things, uh, it's, uh, you end up seeking after wealth and power in this age. And so uh, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes in near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. And so this is the exhortation there is to do the things that restrain what your flesh, what a fallen, uh, darkened human heart in the flesh desire. Like men waiting for their master to return from a banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. So he just fleshes out what seeking the kingdom involves. Selling your possession, being rest, uh, being ready for service, etc. Um, so then, above that, the sojourning heart is protected by spiritual disciplines, trials, and tribulations, but it's fed to stay on the path by signs and wonders, and the powers of the age to come. And so, it's it's not enough just to combat the negative. There is what Tim Miller calls the the mechanics of faith, that to stay motivated to combat the negative, you have to have signs of the positive of receiving the kingdom in your life. And you have to have activity of the Holy Spirit, uh, which feeds it. Um, Point C, the activity of the Holy Spirit, just as an introduction, the activity of the Holy Spirit has generally been neglected a neglected subject in the history of the church. However, those movements that do emphasize it have generally interpreted it within a Christo-naturalistic framework, which generally ends in burnout and disillusionment, because the activity of the Holy Spirit is seen as an end in and of itself. And so there's no interpretive model for the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so within the within a you know the kind of escapist aspect millennial you there's really no need for signs and wonders wonders other than just to prove that God exists and is real and and therefore uh, you need to say a sinner's prayer etc so signs and wonders aren't emphasized because there's no dynamic connection between the activity of the Holy Spirit and going to heaven and then on the dominionist side the activity of the Holy Spirit is the the kingdom and the establishing dominion now and so there's no place for the grace and forgiveness of God. 
And so you, you, you don't get the, like Acts 14, where you get the confirmation of the grace and forgiveness of God by signs and wonders. Because in the resurrection, we're vindicated and justified and God's grace is, is expressed by the atonement. And so the grace of God is expressed in the resurrection, which the signs, of the, of the Holy, the signs and wonders uh, point to. And so in the dominion circles, you, you just almost never hear any substantial teaching on the cross. Because there's, there's just not really a place... Uh, within the theological system as a whole. And so uh, the, the cross and the grace of God ultimately martyred him. Okay, interpreting the activity of the Holy Spirit, which you guys kind of, this is a, a lot of repetitive stuff. Um, uh, the The activity of the Holy Spirit was, you don't get a lot of just real clear, this is what, this is who the Holy Spirit is and why, what it means when he does stuff. And therefore, you don't have a whole lot of biblical commentary historically on the third person of the Trinity because the majority of church history is within a Platonic, uh, a, a Platonic worldview. So just the broad context of worldview based on the cosmogenical beginning gives obvious understanding and clarity for what the Holy Spirit uh, interpreting the Holy Spirit. And so, like uh, Hebrews 6, the broad context of redemptive history uh, informs the elementary teachings about Christ and therefore the Holy Spirit. So, Hebrews 1, let us, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ, which are given to us by the teacher and helper of the Holy Spirit, are made known to us, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to destruction on the day of the Lord, faith in God and the resurrection, instruction about baptism, baptisms, baptism in, in, in water and by the Holy Spirit as a uh, deposit guaranteeing the resurrection, the laying on of hands, by which the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment at the day of the Lord. These are the elementary teachings that flow simply out of a biblical worldview based on Genesis 1 through 3. And so then there's no, uh, there's no break in thought, and God permitting we will do so, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened into the elementary teachings by the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the heavenly gift by the baptism and the laying on of hands as the deposit of the resurrection, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to uh, repentance. So the Holy Spirit is just interpreted within the elementary teachings and the broad spectrum of redemptive history as, a, as the power by which creation was made the power by which creation will be restored in the coming age, and therefore the activity of the Holy Spirit uh, is, is, a, is uh, the powers of the coming age, a sign of the coming age. So I... I uh, how much we got? 26 minutes? How can it be? We started an hour ago. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, okay, so I, I just do some uh, dinky word studies just to, uh, to give the context between the spirit and the breath uh, of life, which you guys, I think I've worked through it with you guys. I'm not sure how repetitive that is. But again, the, the doctrine of the resurrection is based on... Um, on Genesis 1-3 and the breathing of life into mortal flesh. And, uh, and it's, it's based on Genesis 1-3, not a construction of uh, prophetical writings. And a guy gave me a book a while back, a real scholarly book, that was all about the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the body, arguing that you know the, the uh, gospel in the New Testament was the resurrection of the body. And then he went into like 10 chapters 
on how the the doctrine and theology of the resurrection of the body developed out of you know uh latter prophets exilic prophets and post exilic uh intertestimonial writings and i was just like how how that happened I've derailed. B, signs and wonders reinforce the reality of the coming age. They reinforce the identity of the church's sojourning nation, waiting to inherit the resurrection of the body. Though we experience neither justice nor life in this age, he gives us signs of the age to come to strengthen us in our faith. Provision for the impossible now strengthens our faith for the impossible eschatologically. And so it's just the simple mechanics of faith that if we... Don't see the impossible now, and it's just how our hearts function. Where uh, if uh, if we don't see uh, miraculous things happen now, our hearts shut down. We don't believe it uh, that uh, that uh, he will do it in the future. So uh, Hebrews eleven, which kind of exemplifies this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain. Of what we don't see, and I just put the the Greek word because historically the being sure and certain are translated in the King James New King James as substance and evidence rather than being sure and certain because being sure and certain give it a temporal context, which is what the end of chapter ten is. Kind of substance and evidence gives it like a metaphysical feel, you know. But that's the whole context is the, the being sure of the day of the Lord and the age to come happens by faith and God meeting people in faith now miraculously so that they're sure and certain of the age to come and the day of the Lord. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as, in, as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith... He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country living in tents. So God providing for him, the place to go providing for him while he's living in tents, strengthens his faith that he will inherit it uh, and be the father of the nations uh, in the age to come. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect builder is God. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. The promise of him being a father of the nations and therefore he would have a son and a seed that, would, uh, that he would receive his blessing from. And so... Uh, and so from this uh, one man, he who is good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, countless as the sand of the seashore. All these people were still living by faith in the age to come, being certain of it. When they died, they didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a, dis- from a distance. By faith, when God tested him, he offered a- uh, Isaac as a sacrifice he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even when God said to him, "Is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned, or the seed will be reckoned. Uh, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did. So the writer of Hebrews isn't like, you know, creative imagination kind of deal of what was going on in Abraham's mind. It's the only, op- the only possible option in the equation that he believed that if God gives him the son, that he will fulfill his promise, the miraculous now, that he'll fulfill his promise to be the father of nations. And if he sacrifices his son, the only option is that God will raise him from the dead because he's so sure that through his son will be reckoned the seed and his inheritance of the nations. It's the only, I mean, it's the only thing that could be going on in his mind, that he would sacrifice him and God would raise him from the dead. So Romans 4, the promise to Abraham that he, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through law but through righteousness and faith. As God get, named him prophetically in verse 17, calling that which is not as though it were, and hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So 
so shall your offspring so shall your offspring be he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb no distrust made him no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised and so the miraculous now convinces us of uh, and makes us welcome the promises at a distance. And when the miraculous doesn't happen in our lives, the being convinced and certain of what happens in the future uh, dies in our hearts. Um, point C, we've kind of made that point. Page 4, Acts 1, the Holy Spirit is given to us uh, to strengthen that the mechanics of faith, so to say. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then he says, you'll receive a gift to encourage you and strengthen you in your witness about the kingdom of God. And to make certain the kingdom of God, which makes you bold, believing that it's actually going to come to pass. Um, so let's, uh, this is a good breaking point. Let's go ahead and take a break and, uh, we'll get into the name of Jesus after.